I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on November 1st of 2010, under the headline, Mountain Town of Bourne was home of a magnificent swindle. Here we go. When it comes to attracting swindlers and charlatans, there's nothing quite as effective as gold. And nowhere in Oregon was that fact more clear than in the bustling boomtown of Bourne, what today is a tiny ghost town seven miles out of Sumter along the banks of Cracker Creek. Bourne, Oregon was the home of several thousand people along with a large collection of promising-looking but relatively unproductive mines, a palatial residence, and a printing press that in Miles F. Potter's words, quote, hardly had an opportunity to cool off for six years. Its glory days ran from 1900 to 1906 when the mastermind of its multi-million dollar municipal swindle skipped town just hours ahead of the law. Here's the story. In the late 1800s, miners started discovering massive veins of gold in the rugged, remote regions of Oregon's Blue Mountains. In short order, towns like Granite and Sumter sprang up from the rocks. Mining companies started setting up shop, and representatives of a species of rugged, hard-drinking, hard-punching men drifted into the region to work the mines. By this time, technological breakthroughs had made it possible to get a lot more gold out of a promising vein than the hopeful prospectors of 49 had been able to, but it cost a lot more money to do it. That meant mines were more valuable to the big industrial mining concerns than to the individual prospectors. And with the fortunes that were being cracked out of the earth at the time, big industrial mining concerns were springing up on stock exchanges all over the world. Financiers in London were buying, sight unseen, mines in places like Copperfield, Oregon, and they were doing really well. It was probably inevitable that someone in the mining district would figure out, sooner or later, how to work this system to mine a different resource, not gold from the ground, but investments from suckers. It was simple supply and demand. There was a market for mining opportunity fantasies, and into that market stepped F. Wallace White. White worked the system like the pro he was. First, he hauled a printing press up Cracker Creek to the little boom town of Bourne, which was at the time a fading sister city to nearby Granite and Sumter. A few hundred miners lived there and worked the nearby mines, but those mines were playing out and the freelance miners were not having as much luck as their colleagues in the other towns. For White, it was the perfect opportunity. After all, he wasn't in the market for mines that actually produced. Why pay extra for something you don't need? Soon his printing press was in motion. Its main purpose was to crank out two newspapers. One, for local consumption, served as a typical small-town weekly paper and was more or less truthful. The other, distributed nationally wherever suckers might congregate, contained almost nothing but lies, a gold-mining fantasy world that would have been worthy of Walt Disney himself had Walt been a swindler. It was designed to look exactly like a real, honest, small-town weekly newspaper kind of like 
Main Street in Disneyland is designed to look like a real, honest, small-town Main Street. This publication spun fantastic but convincing tales of mammoth gold strikes, of huge capital construction projects, of rich shipments of bullion. And, of course, it offered readers opportunities to buy into this fairyland investment opportunity. With $7.5 million in stock offering, White launched the Sampson Company Limited with offices in London and New York City and Bourne, Oregon. He bought up the playing out mines in the Cracker Creek area and decorated them with all kinds of gold things. And when investors came to visit, he put on a dazzling show for them at his rustic but lovely terraced mansion with its formal dining room and ballroom. And he put on a fabulous show for them at the mouths of promising-looking mines guarded by burly men with steel in their eyes and shotguns in their hands. And the money poured in. Meanwhile, other shysters were working the suckers, too, and the marks were starting to get a little smarter. Or perhaps it was just that so many people had been ripped off that they couldn't fool themselves anymore. In fact, the legitimate mine financing industry was having trouble raising capital, too, because so many investors simply thought any gold mine was crooked. The governor of Pennsylvania actually threatened to outlaw the sale of any Oregon mining stock in his state. In response, the scammers spent even more money. Full-page newspaper ads started appearing. Quote, You can enter the Temple of Fortune by purchasing Hiawatha mining stock, screamed one. There is no record of the Hiawatha having ever produced anything. Quote, By consolidated standard, dividends are sure to follow as day succeeds night. $500,000 worth of rich ore waiting to be processed, promised another. Consolidated standard produced only a tiny trickle of gold. But as for White, by 1906 he was starting to get nervous. What he was doing with his printing press constituted mail fraud, and in his six rich, productive years of mining far-distant suckers, he'd made himself a small army of enemies, many of whom had friends in important places. So one night, White simply disappeared from Bourne. He left everything behind but the money. Authorities did finally catch up with him many years later, still diligently operating mail fraud swindles and no doubt muttering to himself that after this next big score he was going to quit for real this time... And, as for Bourne, the town melted away. There wasn't enough legitimate gold to keep the place busy. Most of the miners went downstream to Sumter or across the ridge to Granite or out of the hills to Baker City. A few families remained, but today it is empty, and it's not coming back. It's part of a national forest. Key sources in this story included works by Miles F. Potter and Stuart Holbrook. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. 
This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatorgan.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶